Over the past three weeks, we've been looking at one of Jesus' famous teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I hope that over the past three weeks, or maybe even today, all of us would maybe begin to put ourselves there when the first people who heard this were hearing it for the first time. Let me describe the setting. It's near the Mediterranean. It's uh, near the Sea of Galilee. There's probably this beautiful landscaping surrounding. And there's this mountainous area. And I don't know where you may have been going that day, but somehow you kind of got just caught up in a crowd of people who were all gathering. And you noticed this man sitting up on the hill starting to talk. And you, so you just decided to linger for a little bit. And you began to listen to what he had to say. And the things that he talked about really caught your attention. They, they were, they made you curious. One of the things he was talking about is this blessed life, like life to the best way that you could ever imagine it. Uh, and we would describe it as a flourishing life. And as you listen, you, you're kind of drawn in. You're like, wow, what would it look like to have that kind of life? And this man that's teaching, you notice there's something different about the words he uses. It seems like they have more authority than what you're used to. You've heard lots of teaching in your day, but but there's something different about this man named Jesus. You had even heard he had done some miracles around. And so not only are you curious, you may be even a little bit intrigued. You're, You're leaning in. And then he begins to talk about the Old Testament law. And you've heard some of the things he's talking about. The first thing he says is you shouldn't murder. And you kind of make some self-analysis and go, yeah, check, I got that one. But what he says next, it shocks you. He says, if somebody like hates someone else in their heart, or if they call somebody a bad name, they're guilty of committing murder. And that kind of stops you in your tracks a little bit. Like, whoa, dude, that's different. That's That's a different twist on something you were familiar with. And it starts to kind of prick your heart a little bit. And then he follows that up by saying, hey, don't commit adultery. And again, you kind of think, yeah, I've I've never done that. But what he says next takes things to the next level, raises the bar. He says that if someone looks at another person lustfully, then they've committed adultery with your heart. And you're like, whoa, now you are joking. You're crazy. That, 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 that's impossible, you might think. I believe that's how the first people who heard Jesus' words really received his message that day. And I hope today that maybe as we look at another topic, I would consider a tough topic, that we might not just be repulsed by what Jesus says, but we may be drawn in. I believe we'll all be challenged. It may lead you to some questions. In fact, that's how we're going to unpack what Jesus has to say today in Matthew chapter five. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to grab a Bible in the seat back in front of you, your own Bible or maybe a device that you have. Look at what he says in Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse 27. We're going to ask some questions that come from this text, three of them. And then one question that we might all be thinking by the time our end or the end of our time together. This is what Jesus says in Matthew verse 27. It says, you have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. Pretty plain and simple, kind of straightforward. Isn't that a great way to start the day? Well, it leads us to a question, and that's the first question we want to answer today. What is adultery? If you were a Jew in the first century, your perception of adultery was shaped by the law of Moses. Jesus quotes the law, Exodus 20, verse 14, Deuteronomy 5, 18, all say you should not commit adultery. But how is the adultery defined in the ancient world? David Field in his Bible commentary, his encyclopedia says this, that adultery is the breach of the one flesh relationship 
of a marriage. The Old Testament law defined and described adultery as sexual intercourse between a married woman and a man other than her husband and all sexual intercourse involving a married man and another man's wife or fiance as adultery. Now that's a very specific, very uh, confined definition of adultery. But adultery is the seventh commandment. And in the Old Testament, it was banned. It, it, It said that you shouldn't commit adultery. It singly focused on the male. It had no prescriptions or protections for the female because in the ancient world, females were seen as property. The consequences of adultery in the Old Testament were harsh. Look what Leviticus 20 verse 10 says, that if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of a neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So Jesus repeats what is known about the Old Testament law. Don't commit adultery. Despite the condemnation in the Old Testament for adultery, we see sexual sin rampant in some of our favorite Bible characters of the Old Testament. Of course, we know David. David was the king of Israel, but he committed adultery with someone other than his wife. It's actually the wife of Uriah, whose name was Bathsheba. He actually murdered her husband to kind of quiet it all. There was our favorite hero, Samson, the one with long hair, the mighty warrior. Well, he was also very promiscuous. And then there's Judah, the leader of one of the tribes of Israel. He had sex thinking it was with a prostitute only to find out it was his actual daughter-in-law. The Old Testament is rampant with examples of people who keep falling to this sin of adultery. The Old Testament prophets actually use adultery to describe the relationship between God and the people of Israel from the people's perspective because they were incapable of living out this covenant relationship with God. And so it's described as as spiritual adultery. As we transition to the New Testament, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders promote that Old Testament law. They truly wanted to honor God and they would probably say like, there is no way we would ever commit adultery because they were thinking of an exterior behavior. They were thinking of this legalistic box of which they had described adultery. But Jesus, he turns everything upside down, especially when it comes to this definition of adultery. Look what he says in Matthew chapter five, verse 28. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That leads us to the second question. Can you commit adultery in your heart? Jesus says, adultery is bigger than simply a man having a physical relationship with another man's wife. Being blessed, living this flourishing life is all about wholehearted devotion. And it's a matter of the heart, including one's thought life. Jesus redefines sexual sin at a deeper level and includes all adultery. He considers it more broadly. He removes the chauvinistic attitude about it. Both men and women are to be faithful and to be pure who follow Jesus. Some translations have used the word uh, lustful intent. I want to be careful to make sure that it's just not a glance, a passing glance that Jesus is referring to, but instead he's referring to a desire, an appetite. That's the lust he's talking about. It's between a man or a woman, a woman looking at a man that way, a man looking at a woman that way. 
It's a thought that could turn into an action. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It really doesn't matter to Jesus. Jesus says that the thought alone is outside God's design for a flourishing life. Jesus says you're breaking the commandment with your heart, with your eyes, and with your mind. Any sexual activity outside the covenant between a man and a woman who've committed themselves in the sacred covenant of marriage is a sin, according to the Bible. Can you imagine how those words would have fell on the ears of the first listeners? Do you think about what the disciples may have thought when Jesus had invited them to follow in him and yet he's turning up the, the, the heat? How do you respond when you hear Jesus' words about what it means to commit adultery in being equal to lustful thoughts and lustful ideas? John Christendom said, he's one of our early church fathers, he says lust is the kindling of the furnace within you. We have to realize it's not the other person's fault when we are tempted or fall to the, the lustful thought. It's our own evil desires that lead us to sin. It's opposite of the life that God desires for us. And Jesus isn't the only one who thinks about that the same way. Listen to what James says in James chapter 1, verse 12 or 13. He says, when tempted, no one should say God's tempting me, for God can't be tempted by evil, and nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire uh, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Sexual sin objectifies women who are made in the image of God. It weakens the mind of men to keep them from being fulfilled and confident in future relationships or even drives them to be abusive. It creates shame in both men and women. Relationally, sexual sin will destroy marriages because of unrealistic expectations that were formed by what people viewed before marriage or also the abandoning of the sacred covenant of marriage. It destroys credibility. It takes away trust. It separates kids from their parents and destroys families. And spiritually, it separates us from God. Sexual sin is a sin and it requires uh, repentance. Anytime we seek fulfillment outside of the way that God has designed, it actually makes us less human in a sense. It drives us to become enslaved to our desires rather than free. It's, not, it's the opposite of flourishing, it's actually floundering. And in my opinion, when a man or woman commits adultery in any type, they're thinking only of themselves, not anyone else. Not their spouse, not their kids, and certainly not their God. It's a selfish act. It destroys the ones we love. And even in our culture that says it's okay, the Old Testament law says don't do it. Jesus says don't do it. Even common sense says don't do it. But why do we? Well, Jesus addresses that. He says it's a matter of the heart. It's all about purity, Jesus says. We have to realize that imagination plays a factor here in our obedience to what Jesus is calling us to. Our imagination is very positive, but it also be very negative. John Stott says this, our imagination is a precious gift of God. It can enrich the quality of life, but all God's gifts need to be used responsibly. Then they can be readily degraded or abused. You may have heard it said that you should just trust your heart, but our heart is deceitful and at worst it's fickle. 
And I think that's why Solomon claims in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, protect it. For everything you do flows from it. Well, Solomon, the wisest person that ever lived, had good words, but he found it's difficult to follow through. And even he failed many times because he was a very promiscuous person. Too often, we don't understand what God has for us. We accept a lesser situation, which brings a lesser result. We try to fill our lives with things that won't satisfy. I think that's why C.S. Lewis said these words. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We fool around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what it's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's why Jesus says we must hunger and thirst for righteousness because then we'll be filled. He says the pure in heart will see God. And Jesus says it starts from the inside out. As a Christ follower, we should hunger and thirst for righteousness, for purity, for holiness. It's about the whole person, not just some external act. Jesus knows that behavior starts from the inside out. Jesus says that it's not just the physical act of adultery and just focusing on that is not enough. Flourishing starts in the heart. God's desire for purity begins in the heart. The flourishing life that Jesus speaks about through the Sermon on the Mount, it centers around righteousness, about devotion, wholeheartedness. As Christ followers, it's more than what we do. It really is who we are. It's what we believe in our hearts. Do you love your wife? Do you love your husband? Do you want to be an example to your children? Do you want to remain pure as a single person? Then set your heart on Jesus and what he desires for you. A flourishing life. I believe our actions will follow. And as you hear that, you might have a question that like, that sounds really hard. It sounds really good, but so hard to do. Well, Jesus knew that. And so he addresses that by saying this next in Matthew chapter five, verse 29. He says this, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You might say, okay, Jesus, I mean, are you serious? Well, what Jesus claims is 100% true. He asked a very poignant question. He said, would you rather go through this life with both eyes and both hands and go to hell or make a sacrifice, go, go through some pain here on earth so that you have eternal life. It leads us to ask this question, question number three, what can I do to avoid adultery? Well, Jesus says, if you're sinning, stop, stop. You'll be saved from the perils of destruction. If you repent, you'll be saved. There really is no actual compromise when it comes to evil. Jesus says sin that's not dealt with leads to destruction. And that's why his claim is 100% true. Jesus has very specific words when he talks about how to deal with adultery. He refers to the right eye and the right hand. And in the ancient world, those were like prized commodities. 
The right eye was important because as a soldier, you would use your right eye to aim. You could picture a soldier closing the left, using his right eye to pick out a target, shooting uh, with his sling or with a bow and arrow. If he didn't have a right eye, he would obviously miss his mark. Think about the right hand. It was the preferred hand in the ancient world. It was the hand used for grabbing things, for writing. It was, it was known as a, as a symbol of strength. Remember, Jesus re- was referred to as standing at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus says, it's so precious, but yet it should be cut off if it keeps you from sinning or it keeps you or leads to sinning. Jesus is clearly saying that there are some drastic measures that you and I should take to maintain and to foster a pure life. Paul picked up kind of the same theme when he talked about cutting off or putting to death the things that would keep us from the life that God wants for us and came to bring us. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, Paul says, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all these things. Paul's describing this difference of before following Jesus and after following Jesus. It should change our thoughts, our actions, our behaviors, our words. Jesus says, but it starts from the inside out. Purity begins in the heart. With that said, we have to realize many scholars believe Jesus is certainly speaking with hyperbole. He's speaking figuratively, allegory, exaggeration to make a point. Jesus is not promoting self-mutilization. Because even a blind person can lust. What Jesus is doing is he's making a point. Robert Mount says this, the vivid imagery used by Jesus is of critical importance of taking whatever measures are necessary to control natural passions that tend to flare out of control. So what Jesus is saying is take radical measures to avoid sin. You might need to quit the gym. Because that's where that woman is, men, who catches your eye every time you go there to work out. Or maybe it's a man for you, woman, who you look at his body and you think, wow, that's a really great work of art, God. Maybe you need to smash your smartphone and just get a dumb phone. A dumb phone won't allow you to go to places that you know are tempting for you or to stay in contact with images or people that are maybe inappropriate or off bounds for you. Maybe you need to find a different job because that flirting that's happening in the office, you don't need it to progress to something, a place that you thought you would never go. Jesus says adultery will destroy your life, your marriage, your kids, your kids' lives. Adultery will cause your body to be cast into hell, Jesus says. A flourishing life is free from adultery. Do whatever it takes, Jesus says, to avoid it. God's desire for purity begins in the heart. Andy Stanley is a well-known author and pastor of uh, North Point Community Church in Atlanta. He was speaking about sexual, uh, sexuality and marriage at a conference. And, and a young man asked him this question, why should I save sex toward, to marriage? And so Stanley replied to him this response. Listen to what he said. He says, if all there is to this life is this life, then I can't think of any reason that you wouldn't have sex with as many women as you can. But... If there's more to this life than meets the eye, if there's a God in whose image you've been made and every woman you've met has been made, 
If sex is a creation that was created for a purpose, and if part of that purpose is to enhance the expression of intimacy between two people, if that fragile, wonderful, delicate experience we term intimacy can be damaged or broken through abuse, then sexual conduct matters a great deal. So you have to decide what you believe, Stanley says, not about sex, but about everything. Once you decide, your answer to your important question will be clear, perhaps uncomfortably clear. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you struggle with lustful thoughts? Do you struggle with your thought life? It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, married or single, it's tough. And Jesus' claim causes us to, to have questions, to think in our heart, how's that even possible? Let me just make some practical action steps for us today. The first is this. If you wanna have a pure heart, desire God more. Pray specifically to God to help you. Keep away from situations of temptation. Read the Bible constantly. Fill your heart with good things instead of impure things. That's why David said in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. And he says, I've hidden my wor your word in my heart, God, that I wouldn't sin against you. Remember who God is and what he's done for you. Serve God and others more actively. That'll do something useful with your thought life, with your eyes, with your hands. And keep away from sin. The second thing you might do is be accountable to someone. Regular conversation and honest confession is good for the heart, especially when it's done in the context of a safe relationship with a trusted friend. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, when you are confessing to another Christian, you're actually engaging God. You're confessing to God. James 5, 16, that's why James says these words, confess your sins to one another, pray for each other so that you will be healed. The third thing I'd encourage you to do is be transparent with those you love, like your spouse, your kids, even a trusted friend. Sync up your calendar so that your wife or your husband knows exactly what your day looks like and where you'll be. Demonstrate an attitude of trust and of love. Don't hide anything. Be an open book. Be responsible and trustworthy. And I would also encourage you, share victories as you experience them. And last but certainly not least, avoid anything that causes sin. Anything that would cause you to have improper thoughts or do improper things. Some of you need to go home and throw out some magazines. Some of you need to drive a different way to the office because that billboard you pass catches your attention every time you go. You need to stay away from the place where she is or he is and you know who those people are. Be proactive. Place yourself with restrictions on your life, on your phone, on your computer, on your television. Maybe delete it or Lock it up or clean it out. Take preventative steps to keep your heart pure and from temptation. In a nutshell, Jesus says, take extreme measures. Be willing to gouge your eye out or cut your hand off, Jesus says. I have a friend named Tom who'd like to go see the Indiana Pacers play in Indianapolis. And, and while he was there, oftentimes when there was a timeout or during halftime, Tom would take his glasses off. Tom could not see his hand in front of his face without his glasses on. And so his 
interesting to me why he was always removing his glasses. But then he told me that is when the jumbotron is on during the halftime or timeouts, they usually have the paysets, the, the dancers of the pacers on the screen. And when he takes his glasses off, he can't see what's on the screen. It's just a, a simple yet drastic measure that Tom is using to keep his heart pure. I want to make sure that I speak to the whole group of us today. This is not just an issue that men struggle with. Women, you struggle with it too. If that wasn't the case, 50 Shades of Grey would not have sold 125 million copies. If it wasn't true, Shades of Grey movie would not have surpassed the opening Dale revenue sales and set a new record. In the record they set was $85.1 million of sales on opening weekend. That set a new record. It surpassed the former record holder at $83.8 million. Guess what that movie was? Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. I'm guessing that many of those books and those tickets that were purchased were not purchased by men. But I would admit and also submit that the struggle is a little different for women, maybe not as visual, but certainly more emotional. It's an emotional infidelity, I think, that applies to Jesus' words. Is there a man at the office who actually listens to you or maybe more than your boyfriend or your husband? He's fascinating. He's different. He's, he's intriguing. He's engaging. Or maybe you get enthralled in some romance novel or movie. Your mind wanders, your imagination strays. You fantasize about having a person like that in your life. You wish your husband was a little more like that. Well, Jesus describes that as sexual sin. Avoid it, women. Avoid it, men. Take radical measures. And I think that leads us all to maybe ask this fourth question. What if I've already committed sexual adultery? I'll not ask you to raise your hands here this morning, but what if you've committed the physical act of adultery? What if you're stuck in some type of sexual sin? What if you struggle continuously with lustful thoughts in your heart? Do you feel shame? Do you feel abandoned? Do you feel like you've lost someone in your life because of this terrible temptation or this terrible sin? Do you feel disconnected with God? Well, do not let this area of your life Keep you from the flourishing life that Jesus comes to bring you. Do not let this keep you away from striving and living in holiness and righteousness. You can address this today. Jesus engaged a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery by the religious leaders. I won't let my mind wander to what it may have been that she did. It just says that she was caught red-handed. And the religious leaders bring this woman to Jesus, kind of throw her at his feet. And then they say, they quote the Old Testament law. Jesus, we know the Old Testament law says that if someone's caught in the act of adultery, they should be stoned. What do you think we should do with this woman? You know, picture the scene. They already have rocks in their hands. And Jesus doesn't say a word, but he kneels down in the dirt. And John chapter eight records that he begins writing in the dirt. No Bible commentator can be exactly what Jesus is writing there. Many have thought maybe he's writing down the sins of all the religious leaders who are holding stones that day, because what he says to them is interesting. They keep pressing him of what should we do? And so he finally speaks and he says, here you go. If any of you are without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And then he kneels back down and starts writing in the dirt again. 
One by one, John records the oldest to the youngest drop their stone and kind of slip off into the crowd. And then it just says Jesus and the woman left there. And finally, he looks up at her and he says, woman, where are all your accusers? And she kind of shrugs her shoulders. She doesn't know. And he says those profound words, maybe you've heard a hundred times. And I hope this morning you might receive and respond. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. Jesus says, I don't condemn you for your sin. I don't condemn you because I love you more than your sin. Repent. Don't do it anymore. Follow me. Pursue righteousness. Live a flourishing life. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient. It's bigger than your sin, including the sin of adultery. You can't sin more than I can forgive, Jesus says. I died for you. I love you. I don't condemn you. Jesus says, you don't have to wear that A any longer on your chest. David, the man after God's own heart, I already indicated, was also an adulterer and a murderer. But he records a prayer that he wrote from the depths of his heart that speaks of confession, but it also speaks of forgiveness and hope. Listen to David's words found in Psalm 51. David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. And so you are right in your verdict. You're justified when you judge. David says, surely I was sinful at birth, sin from the time of my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. David says in verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I placed my red ribbon from last weekend to remind me of the reconciliation of God right there in that passage. I never want to forget whatever my sin is, God has forgiven me. He's healed me. He's bringing me victory. And God wants to do the same for you. God desires purity and it begins in our heart. He doesn't want us to flounder. He wants us to flourish. Author David Haig wrote a book called The Obedience Option. And he makes a simple conclusion that one passion may seem irresistible until another passion comes along. And so he defines faith in this way. He says, faith is a life-dominating conviction that all God has for me through obedience is better than anything Satan could offer me through sinfulness and sin. God desires purity. And purity begins in our heart. And it begins with placing our faith in Jesus and in the life that he brings us. That's truly what brings us life to the fullest and brings us the ability to follow him. So this morning, I don't want you to leave here with just maybe a familiar teaching that you've struggled for years to put into practice. 
We don't want to be a church that just points out the truth. We want to do that in love. And what the most loving thing we could do this morning is to let you know that we don't condemn you, that we don't even judge you because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What we want to do is we want to come alongside you. We first of all want you to know that Jesus died for you, whatever your sin may be. He died for all of us once and for all for the sin that we keep committing over and over and over. He died for it. And he also wants to bring us freedom from it. And sometimes that freedom just means that we need to engage some help. And certainly his Holy Spirit is the greatest help that any of us could ever rely on. But as a church, we also want to come alongside you. We want to pray with you. We want to pray for victory and for freedom in your life. We also have some resources that you might need to take advantage of. We have a group uh, every Monday night. Our support groups meet here at 5.30 for a meal and 6.30 following. And, and there are groups every Monday night that help you find victory, that help you find support, that will help you find recovery from, from sexual sin, from other addictions, from things that are wreaking havoc in your life. Find the freedom and flourish because of what God wants to do in your life. And also we have a counseling center just meet, it happens to be located right at the end of our drive. And the people on our team there are dedicated to help you find this flourishing life that Jesus speaks about. My prayer is that you won't leave here today. No one would leave here today without, first of all, receiving the grace of Jesus Christ, but also finding help in their time of need. So as we close our service today, some of our care team will be available over here by the baptistry, over here to my left. They would just be here to pray with you if you need somebody to talk to and come alongside you as you fight this battle, as you seek this, this flourishing life Jesus is describing. I'd encourage you, if you need information about our support groups or our counseling center, head out to the Connection Center. They'll help you find when and where you can get connected to those ministries. I would just encourage you, as Jesus did, to do whatever it takes to start to nourish and flourish in this life that Jesus came to bring you, because that's where you'll find life to the fullest. Jesus says, true life. Let's pray together. God, your teaching from your word challenges all of us. And this issue of sexual sin and adultery, God, it probably has touched every one of us in some way. It's wreaked havoc in all of our hearts in some way. God, Solomon knew it was difficult. Jesus knew it was difficult. And, and yet he gives us drastic measures to take so that we would be able to nurture this heart, the heart that's soft, not heart that's hard. So God, my prayer is that you would start to do amazing work in each of us through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the power of the gospel that can change us from, from living one way to living a way that's more like you and your son, Jesus. God, would you bring along those people in our life that would not be a temptation, but would be a strength, a help to us, to hold us accountable, to encourage us, to help bring freedom, God. God, I pray the result is that the world would see that we live differently. We don't live like we used to. We live much more like Jesus. And they can see what it looks like to have a pure heart that takes drastic measures to focus our attention, to focus our devotion, to focus our affections on the one who died for us and to live for him. God, help us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for the strength you provide us to live this life you've called us to. Thank you for the example Jesus gives us, not just in word, but in action. Help us to be more like him. We pray through his name. Amen.